a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. In this episode, we're talking about peace in the Middle East and whether it's actually ever going to be a possibility. I mean, this has been the aim of many of the world's diplomats and every US president really for generations now, Keith. And it's evaded everyone. No (laughs) one has accomplished this, but yet suddenly, suddenly, Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of Donald Trump, believes he can accomplish this. This is what he's calling the deal of the century. We don't know for sure what he's going to uh, do. The reasoning behind this is to change the style of, of recent negotiations which have been pioneered by some Scandinavians, which was a series of steps whereby you deal with all the relatively easy ones, using that term loosely in the Middle East, you deal with the easy ones and then you work through to the end ones, which would be the status of Jerusalem as a capital for Israel and Palestine. Now, that peace process, which is traditionally seen as the peace process, has ground to a halt. So Gerald Kushner is coming up with a new approach. So his attitude is, well, why don't we mobilise business and finance and economics? So in other words, if we get Israelis and Palestinians becoming richer, then we can start to talk about the bigger Palestinian issues. So he's trying to reach it through a trade perspective rather than a a political perspective, like settlement of borders, resettlement of uh, Palestinians who were expelled in 1948. Will there be two separate states living side by side? Now, we don't know the full details of Gerald Kushner. The latest speculation is that they may be published in September. They may even wait until Donald Trump is re-elected, if he is re-elected, in November of next year. So we still don't have the the details, but the overall idea that he's arriving at, and he's trying to do it by a completely different method. Instead of negotiating, you know, like a salami, one slice at a time, but dealing with the politics, he wants to deal with the economics. So that, that's what he's um, about. In terms of their long history of the problems in the Middle East, yes, um, with the problem of the Middle East is, first of all, it's on the crossroads of the world. So if you can go back to the era before we had aircraft and people journeyed mainly over land rather than sailing ships. So if you were to go from Africa into Europe or Europe into India or whatever, you were always going through the Middle East. So that's one traditional problem. The Middle East is the crossroads of the world. The second problem is it is home of the three main religions of the world. So there's Judaism, Christianity and Islam. Obviously, you've got Asian religions as well, but certainly the three big three that dominate Western politics are Judaism, Christianity and Islam. And they're all based in one land. Well, Islam is also based in Saudi Arabia, but also contains holy locations, particularly Jerusalem in for the case of Islam. Obviously, Judaism and Christianity fight it out within the holy land. And then... The third problem is it's been the onset of the oil era. So that began in the United States in 1859. It was during the 1910s, 1920s, just before just before World War I, when the British that ran the world's biggest navy made a very courageous decision. They got out of coal. Now, remember, Britain is full of coal. It was the first modern coal-producing country, 1750. 
And Winston Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty, made this very controversial and daring decision to get out of coal. And uh, he said, we will now go for oil, which in retrospect was a, a very sensible decision on the part of Winston Churchill. Uh, the problem with coal is you needed teams of people working 24 hours a day. So they, they would do eight-hour shifts of just shoveling coal into these furnaces to keep the engines running. Very labour-intensive. And obviously coal is very heavy to carry around as a fuel source, as distinct from oil. You, oil is a, a magical source of power. Uh, coal, even though Britain was full of the stuff, and didn't have any oil. So they made that decision, which meant that suddenly the British had to pay more attention to the Middle East, which was, of course, controlled by the decaying Ottoman Empire. So all those years ago, this was still relevant? Yeah, all those years ago, because it means suddenly Arab countries that we thought were just sand are actually sitting on a huge amount of oil. And in Saudi Arabia's case, the oil, the, the joke of Saudi Arabia is that you put the straw in the sand and the oil bubbles up through the straw. That is an exaggeration, but it's a story that oil people like to tell because it just shows how easy it is to get the oil out, was easy to get the oil out of Saudi Arabia. If you look at North Sea oil, for example, and the platforms that are having to be dug and, you know, down onto the, the seabed of the North Sea, unbelievable technology. Whereas when they suddenly started looking for oil in the Middle East, which is what the British were doing, right? The, the Ottomans, the Turks, were still controlling what is today Saudi Arabia, etc. The British went to Iran. So BP is British Persian petrol, right? Petroleum. Right. British Petroleum. BP Petroleum. British Persian so Persia is now called Iran, yeah. right? So the British were developing links with Persia, which is not an Arab state, it's a Persian country. And suddenly the Middle East, therefore, becomes important, not only because it's the crossroads of the world, which also now includes the Suez Canal by this point, not only important for religion, but it's also important economically because of that supply of oil. So when people say, well, why do we always focus so much on the Middle East? Well, there are three reasons to start with. But particularly, though, when we talk about peace in the Middle East, we're talking really between Israel and Palestine. Were either of those particularly oil-rich countries all those years ago, Keith? The bottom line is that if we could had a magic wand and we could solve Israel and Palestine, we would still have problems yeah. in the Middle East. So getting back to Israel and Palestine, well, the lesson of recent decades, remember we've talked about this in regard to the work on, on Africa, is that when you start looking for oil, you find it. So is there oil under Israel or under the Palestinian territory? Who knows? There may well be. But, of course, they're, they're in a strategic place in terms of pipelines if you're moving oil across the Middle East. So one way or another, they also are tied in to the, the future of oil, which is a strategic commodity. Now, since you focused on Israel and Palestine, so I'm very pessimistic about, well, my, mind you, is yeah. purely because, sorry, because Jared Kushner, being, yeah. being Jewish as well. Oh, absolutely. He does tend to have that kind of focus. Oh, he does. And, and the American media. Yeah. You know, so often when the New York Times talks about the Middle East, there's actually a code for Israel and Palestine. Absolutely. So the reason I'm pessimistic is that you've got too many people making too many claims on too little land. So the, the, the piece of land that's in dispute is the equivalent of what we have from here up to Newcastle on the coast out to the Blue Mountains. So it's practically walking distance 
if you're heavily into walking. So, you know, we're not talking about a huge area and you somehow have to settle perhaps 15 million people in that minute strip oh, of land I mean, it's with a lot of history. Beggar's belief, doesn't <laughs> it? It does. And there's also very little room for compromise. This has come out a lot in terms of um, negotiations that go on that if you do try to compromise, now if we have an argument, then both of us perhaps will give a bit of give and take. In the Middle East, in this context, any of that, and you end up with the other side taking even more. It's a sign of weakness to try to compromise. So the best chance in recent years for a peace deal was with the Israeli Prime Minister Barak, who was the most decorated soldier, I think, in Israeli history. Very well regarded. When was he? At the time of President Clinton. So we're looking at almost 20 years ago, right? And so he was willing to surrender Israeli territory in the hope of achieving a peace deal with the Palestinians. And the more that he gave up, the more Yasser Arafat argued for for even more. Uh. So in the end, you know, Clinton just said, look, we just can't progress further with Camp David negotiations. So that's 20-odd years ago. I still remember the, the images of those three leaders there together. Yeah, yeah. Oh, big news. Big news at the time. So on top of all of this, you've also got many religious people expecting a showdown in the area. So you've got obviously some Jews expecting their Messiah to return. Some Jews don't recognise the existence of the State of Israel because the Messiah hasn't arrived yet. Therefore, there cannot be a Jewish homeland. But that is created when the Messiah arrives. Linked to that is also the movement for what's called the Third Temple. So Israel, the Holy Land, has had two temples in the past. The second one was destroyed in the year AD 70. And so there is a movement to build a third temple. The problem is that that piece of real estate is currently occupied by Muslims, so <laughs> Temple of the Mount. So you'd have problems, obviously, but you know that that's part of this, if you like, this rather frightening sort of end of the world thinking. So you've got that within the Jewish, some Jewish community. Obviously, you've got Christians who are waiting for the second coming. So this is an area that we have explored. I keep coming back to it. The U.S. Secretary of State is heavily into this mindset. What? He he belongs, uh, Pompeo belongs to a minority Presbyterian sect who are expecting Jesus here at any time. Another one, uh, this goes back to the era of President Reagan, who appointed, uh, I think his name was Watt, he appointed a fellow to be the Secretary of the Interior, and one of his roles was um, protecting the environment, so we would call him the Environment Minister, and he took the view that Jesus is coming back any day, therefore let's get the resources out of the national parks that the Americans had established over the decades. So he was going to allow drilling in the national parks. So that's why I I keep saying we have to get inside the mindset of some of these key players. Mm. So from from Pompeo's point of view, the US Secretary of State, Jesus is coming back any day now. So that means, you know, I'm not that worried about the second coming and, and Armageddon because that's what we need. You know, people like me, by contrast, that are working for peace are delaying the arrival of Jesus. I get criticised by the more extremist elements in the Christian community in this country. Not so much now because I'm no longer so much heavily involved in the peace issue, but certainly decades ago when I was, I was criticised for delaying the return of Jesus. So that's the second thing you've got to bear in mind. So you've got some Jews who are expecting the Messiah. When is is the Messiah meant to come? He will come to Jerusalem, of course. Right. Right, right. And Jesus will also return. And then thirdly, you've got the Shia side of the Islamic community, 
right? So you've got Sunni and Shia. Mm. So the Shia are expecting the return of the 12th Imam, who was last seen, I think, about 900 years ago. In the desert. Uh, yeah, so he, he is hi- in hiding for the last 900 years and he is due to return. So, And again, on this question of the Shia, we had the Mahdi uh, revolution that we had um, in the Sudan, what, about 120 years ago, rebelling against the British, led by what the British called the Mad Mahdi. That was where Winston Churchill was fighting at Omdurman. And his religious followers took the view that they would go into battle because they would expect to be going into heaven. And they'll bring on the, the 12th Imam. This is why I say you have to get inside the religious mindsets of some mm. of these people because they do make decisions. And so, as I say, in all three religious communities, there is a viewpoint of saying, well, let's get on with this showdown because that'll bring on the Messiah or the Imam, whatever you want to call <laughs> that person. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. So in the year AD 70, the previous Jewish kingdom, well, it wasn't a kingdom, but it was Jewish territory, got smashed up by the Romans. They rebelled. There's a bit of debate whether you want to say it's the year 70 or the year 125, 132, but certainly a lot of years ago, the, the Jewish presence was smashed by the Romans. The Jews were very difficult to control. And so they rebelled from time to time and the Romans said, oh, damn you, we're going to smash your temple. That's the second temple, right? We're going to smash the temple and we're going to kill as many of you as we can. We will scatter you around the world. So I, I take the year AD 70. So the, some Jews continued to remain in the Holy Land. Others were scattered. For example, we, we find traces of synagogues on the Silk Road on the way to China. Wow. So that they, some of them really were scattered, but they retained this tribal memory of still having to have a presence in Jerusalem. And one of their greetings is next year in Jerusalem. So that's when they will meet next year in Jerusalem. Right. And they've been saying that for 1,900 years in one form or another. So they've kept that memory alive. So Jews continue to linger in today's Holy Land. Meanwhile, you've obviously got other groups who moved in on that territory. The Samaritans, for example, in the northern part of the Holy Land were people who were brought in when the Assyrians in Old Testament times got rid of some of the Jews, took them into captivity and then put in another group. So you have Samaritans in Samaria, Samaria, which is the northern part of Israel. And you had obviously the Jews. And then, of course, with the onset of the Islamic revolution that begins under the Prophet Muhammad, you then, of course, get people who are Muslim living in that Holy Land. And you have a number of countries that try to control the Holy Land one way or another. The most recent major imperial power, of course, was the Ottoman Empire, right? So the Turkish Empire, one of the world's largest and longest surviving empires. We in the English-speaking world don't pay too much attention to the Ottoman Empire, but it was certainly a magnificent achievement on the part of the Turkic people. So they were Muslim, but they weren't Arab. So they controlled that part of the Middle East. And in the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire became the sick man of Europe. And you had uh, European countries trying to nibble away at parts of that empire. So the Italians, for example, want to get parts of North Africa. Obviously, the British had an eye on 
taking over some of the Middle East because they were anxious about the oil. The French were obviously interested as well. So in World War I, the Ottoman Empire made the fatal decision of supporting Germany against the British and the French. And they lost World War I. During World War I, you had the British making a series of contradictory promises. This, this is British diplomacy at its most brilliant, right? So Lawrence of Arabia, who's a specialist in Arab affairs, gets sent in to mobilise the Arabs and he reinvented guerrilla warfare. He, he deserves a program, in my view, on his own and the rediscovery of guerrilla warfare. Remarkable achievement. So he said to the Arabs, yes, we want you to kill fellow Muslims, but the British will give you independence if they win the war. So support the British now and the British will give you independence. That was one promise. A second promise was given in 1917 to the international Jewish community promising a homeland for Jews. So there'd been what's called a Zionist movement underway for several decades and various offers were being made, including sending the Jews to northwestern Australia. So that Zionist, that bit of the Zionist movement didn't get very far. They wanted to go back to Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. Mm. And so um, the British, to try to draw the Americans in, promised the Jewish community if we get control of the Holy Land, we'll give you a Jewish homeland for yourself. And then the third thing is that secretly, we're dealing with the British, remember, I speak as an Englishman. <laughs> they, did, they did the dirty on both because they then negotiated a separate arrangement with the French diplomats called the uh, Sykes-Picot Agreement. So Mark Sykes was the British negotiator to divide up the Middle East between them. So they're promising land to the Jews, they're promising independence to the Arabs, but in fact what they're really doing is just maintaining control over the Middle East. They're going to get rid of the Ottomans and then they're going to create their own. You just can't trust those British, particularly when they get together with the French. So sneaky. So sneaky. And then (laughs) time of the Russian Revolution in 1917, the Bolsheviks broke open the Foreign Office files in Moscow and came across a, a copy of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. So clearly there was a lot of anger because the Arabs were saying, look, the, the British and the French are going to stab us in the back. We're going to work for them, but they're not going to honour their side of the promise. Anyway, at the end of World War One, obviously the British did win along with the French. They did break up the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and Turkey was then reformed as a small rump of territory around Constantinople, Istanbul, Mm. with Ankara as the capital. And then the British and the French mainly set about carving up the Ottoman Empire. And so um, the British acquired Palestine and so ran it on on behalf of the international community as a territory, but very much under British control. The British were also in Iraq as well Mm. and also keeping an eye on Saudi Arabia. The French got Syria and Lebanon. The typical European imperialism. I know. <laughs> no wonder the Arabs are very suspicious of Europeans. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, they have every right to be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we get then in, in Israel, or in, in what's then called Palestine, you get obviously an established Palestinian community, an Islamic community. You've also got a, an Israeli Jewish community because these are people who've stayed on through the centuries. And you've also got a Christian community. And then you get a series of, uh, of community battles between the influx of Jews fleeing Europe, particularly with Hitler, of course, from 1933 onwards, and you get Palestinians. 
And so just before the outset of World War II, the British said, all right, they didn't know that World War II was definitely going to come. They said, we will create two states, Israel, what is today we would call Israel, the other one is Palestine. The Jewish authorities said, yes, we will accept that. The Palestinians rejected it. Now, every time since 1939 that deal has been revived, there's been a smaller amount of territory for the Palestinians. If the Palestinians had said yes, there would now be a separate Palestine living alongside a separate Jewish homeland. And so the, the, the two-state solution is two different countries? Two different countries. Mm. What are the other options, though? Well, the other option would be to maintain one unified greater Israel and the Arabs, the Palestinians, would live inside that. But the problem is the real threat long-term to Israel comes from the eternity wards of the Palestinians because they're having so many children. So you could end up, if you were to try to maintain one state, you would then end up with um, a majority Arab population looking to the long term. That's why the two-state solution is the one that's been preferred. But it means that the, the Palestinians will be living on less and less land. Every time this offer is made, there's less land available for them. This has been Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.